Hello world. Uh, this is Cole Moss, your host of Vegan Carne Alliance. And today I am sitting here with Chef Sasha Alger. Did I get that right? Close enough. I did okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, today we are going to be talking about her life in the food world. Now, I, I've known Sasha for a long time. We're actually going to end up talking about this a bit more. But I wanted to properly introduce Sasha. She um, has... She has worked in many places around Los Angeles. If you've been here, I would assume that she has made food for you in some capacity. So let's sort of talk about that. The list I have is City, Ciudad, Border Grill, Zuni Cafe, Saint Sauvie Street, Blue Window, Mud Hen Tavern, Freshwater Dumpling and Noodle House at the Huntington Gardens, Veggie Grill uh, as the Director of Culinary Innovation, Border Grill Restaurant Group as the Executive Chef, Jetro, and you are now working on a new thing called Mad Misha's Dumplings. Is that right? That sums it up in a very maybe recent way. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, I I I think that uh, my career spans thirty years. So uh-huh. I think, uh, and then some. So so I think I've done a lot around LA. Some of that was not LA, uh-huh. but I think you know most of I grew up was born and raised in LA. So I kind of think of it as my hometown and where I love to cook and live and experiment. Did you, whenever you were growing up here, did you think that you would be working in LA? Did you, I mean, did you like the culinary scene here growing up? Were you interested in it? No, I don't think I even thought of it for for forever. You know, when I was young, I kind of went my way and I think like many people in the culinary industry now why we're in this in this job is because we can't get other jobs that's what I like to say (laughs) so so you know I I was basically a punk little hoodlum and uh ended up on the other side of it thank god uh in a way of what am I going to do with my life and Mm -hmm. so while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life I started cooking Uh Uh, like many people do. Uh And uh, it wasn't my intention to keep cooking. Uh But as I worked and just met people and it became my family. And one of the things that's so wonderful about restaurant business is that it's such a community. Mm -hmm. And if you are kind of a lost soul a little bit, you find immediate camaraderie. Uh And that is very strong, almost like how the military is, where you are just so bonded with people and you're going through these very hard, physically hard, mentally hard days, long days, long shifts. And you're coming out the other side with this group of people and you have to do it together. You have to work together to do it. And so I was really addicted to that life. And so I think more than the food, that camaraderie, that sense of community Uh kept me in that business. And so as I was looking for what I was going to do with my life, I kept getting better and better restaurant jobs. I had very good fortune in meeting some amazing chefs very early on Uh and staying with amazing chefs very early on. And so, um, and that was in a time also where only people with money went to culinary school. It didn't really exist Uh for the regular people. And so it was a lot easier to go in and just get work dishwashing or prepping or doing whatever and then moving your way up. When you said you started cooking, were you cooking initially at home? I mean, did you do a lot of cooking growing up or were you a certain age and you said, I need money and your friend said, you know, you had a a friend who was like, I can get you a job you know, at this restaurant. Did yeah, that- it wasn't even that smooth. It was, uh, I didn't grow up cooking, although my mom cooked a ton. Uh-huh. So, um, you and you've met my it. mother. Uh-huh. So, I have. <laughs> so uh-huh. she, uh, so I was around cooking a lot and, you know, my family is mixed. So my dad is kind of Euro-American mutt mm-hmm. and my mom is Chinese, uh-huh. but, um, both my parents were born here in the States and, um, my mom's from New York, Chinatown. So, and you know, oh, wow. my dad's family is all from all over. My, my grandma, um, whose family is from Corsica, uh-huh. actually grew up in Arkansas. And so we've got like this whole oh, wow. wide, crazy mix of family. And so family meals were always, you know, oh, we're going to have this. And it was the early seventies. So it's like, Oh, we're going to have this seventies casserole, but it's going to be with stir fry or, you know, it just was, oh, or we're going to have this like 
great Chinese meal and it's going to have Waldorf salad and jello on the side. You know, so it was always just this crazy mishmash. And so I grew, grew up now, I realize that I'm older. I grew up really not having any sense of something had to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. Food could be whatever it had to be. So, so I think a lot of people didn't grow up like that. You grow up, you eat what you eat. Your family mm-hmm. eats this way. Your whole town eats that way. And we didn't grow up like that. Well, one, I grew up in a big city, so mm-hmm. there's a difference there. But also I grew up with a family that was very, you know, we eat what we like to eat. Mm-hmm. And my mom was very experimental, like, oh, I saw this in the store. I thought I'd cook it up. And, oh, that's cool. And, you know, so... You know, sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. And, sure. you know, it, it was just always um, a mishmash. And so, but that I, I realize now, I didn't realize it then, mm. and starting cooking, that didn't even come into my mind. But I realize it now that that, was, that set the basis for how I think about food now and how I'm willing to try things or look at food and community in a different way and how we mix those things. So you were talking about sort of the, the welcoming community, sort of the communal familial nature of like a kitchen. Um, but you also were talking about the punk scene, which can be very, you're in or you're out. Uh, when you were growing up in Los Angeles, were you going to a lot of shows? Were you very involved with the music scene? No, I guess when I said punk, I mean, I was actually did go through that. I was a little, uh, too young for that because I think that happened more towards if I was a teenager when I was born, maybe I would have hit it, but I hit kind of my teenage years in late seventies, early eighties. So Uh it was more part of that Uh eighties kind of maybe Gen X Uh (laughs) scene. But I think what I meant by punk was more like hoodlum. Like I was very, yeah, I was trying to be nice Uh about the way I describe myself. (laughs) You know, I was um, definitely a delinquent and uh, doing every kind of, thing that you shouldn't be doing uh when you're you know when you're young and somebody says I don't want my kid hanging around that kid because they're a bad influence I was that kid Mm. and um and I was not in school and didn't do well and you know on drugs and drinking too much and like breaking the houses and doing these things that I shouldn't have done all that but I came from this really fantastic family and so I think that's what brought me home eventually and I think you even saying this for people who don't know Sasha Sasha to me is uh one of my favorite people uh maybe this is kind of the perfect time to tell it the first time I met Sasha we didn't know each other in any way I was at the second yeah the second LA vegan beer fest and um it was the end of the day and I was completely stuffed with food and beer and um I was I I shouldn't have had anything I shouldn't have eaten for the next few days but I was walking out and somehow you and I started talking and you were um you were doing you were selling your bows and Oh, and we, uh, I couldn't even remember where I met you you, actually. So that's good that you told that story. (laughs) I was thinking, is that, so yeah, you had your jackfruit bow and Mm -hmm. I, I remember you, I was like, I don't, I'm, I don't know if I approached you or you approached me, but I sort of, I sort of said like, is this worth it? You know what I mean? Like I'm dying right now. I'm already hurting in every way. I'm, I already called, you know, a lift to go to the hospital. Like (laughs) you let me know uh, if it's worth the extra surgery. And yes you it was and you I had it then and I I mean I I still think about it all the time it's it's a wonderful dish that ended up making its way to I think Blue Window later at some point right uh it did one of the restaurants I don't Uh remember which Uh one it's so hard it all blends together I loved that festival when it was on the early days it was so great it was really Um, fun yeah uh yeah it was a jackfruit bow with a peanut hoisin Uh sauce Uh and I remember that at the time there the wasn't anything vegan dough. like that and no there was not that might have been yeah. my first experience you know I, I didn't actually know this someone t- like told me later maybe when I was doing research that it had jackfruit that might have been my first experience with jackfruit ever which again mm. like we were talking about earlier when we we went and walked and got some coffee we were talking about how vegan food is often sort of it's kind of in its infancy in many ways and I was saying that I hadn't had oat milk until you know whatever eight months ago a year ago and that Oatly is coming out with Keenly and it's going to be quinoa milk and it's like everything's going to be a new milk. I was saying like, I want seaweed milk. I don't know what's going to happen. And I feel like that was a wonderful moment. I got to have jackfruit from you for the first time. Um, 
I feel like you're sort of doing that all the time, though. Like, Well, it's funny that dish. It's funny you bring up that dish. I forgot about that dish was very early on in my I'd been cooking vegetarian food for some time. Um, it was always part of at the time I had a restaurant called Street in Hollywood with my partner, uh, Susan Feniger. We had a, a restaurant and we did global street food. Um, and that was our thing. And it was such a big part of us to not have meat be center of the plate there, but we never approached it from this point of view of let's make it vegetarian or the vegetarian dishes we had on were more about celebrating the vegetable. And, um, it wasn't about the culture of vegetarian and vegan wasn't even really in the game yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't about, hey, we want to try and make this vegetarian thing to be all inclusive. It mm-hmm. was more like we want to make these vegetarian things because these vegetables are fantastic. They mm-hmm. should be center of the plate, just like all the meat is. And I know that might sound like sort of the same thing, but it's actually very different when oh, you talk about different. the culture mm-hmm. of the way people eat versus the diet of the way people eat. Right. And so, um, so I had been cooking vegetarian food. You know, but at some point we started a switch and I can't remember if it happened with street. I think it did happen with street and then later on mud hen, but, um, where it became more prominent and we were very focused on it, but the vegan connection started to happen. And I had, um, some key people who helped me along that way, um, that are invaluable to me and, uh, really shifted my thinking but that bow was you know it was something that one of my team members made for like a staff meal or maybe she made it I don't even remember how it happened but she made this thing and I said this is so fantastic we have to figure out a way to put this on the menu we actually put it on a valentine's day menu that we had at first that was like we did an 80s cassette tape valentine's and um and all the menu items were named after 80s bands. And so we had this dish called Bow Wow Wow. And it was Bow B-A-O, which is this kind of bow. And um, we did that dish. Mm-hmm. And it was the beginning of me having this aha moment with vegan food, specifically of like, wow, if we just put this and this and this in, it's vegan. And we don't even have to try. And everybody will eat it. And it's delicious no matter if you're vegan or not. And <laughs> I, it was really like kind of this, it's funny that I forgot all about it because it was really this kind of turning point of myself realizing wow. how vegan food can just be so delicious and, and it doesn't have to be this thing you have to call out, but just, it could just be this amazing dish. When it's come full circle now. So I, I, 10 years ago, wouldn't have known what a bow is. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to describe it and then you help me out here. So it's a real soft, thick dough wrapped around sort of a, a, usually like a protein. What is it typically? Like a pork or a beef? Pork, sometimes chicken, but, um, it's a Chinese dim sum Uh and, uh, and it's very specifically Chinese and it's a soft yeasted dough. Uh-huh. So it's fluffy uh-huh. and it's steamed or baked the uh-huh. way we did it was steamed. Uh-huh. So, um, but it's this really fluffy yeasted sweet uh-huh. kind of dough and it's, and kind it's of, around it's almost usually a baseball like, size. yeah. Or, and, and right softball there. even maybe. And, Sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, I was going to say yours yeah. was big. I mean, when you offered we it to me, it was essentially a threat. <laughs> exactly. Well, and eventually we ended up doing, we did plays on that dish. You know, we did something for Cinco de Mayo. We called it taco bow and we did like, you know, we did taco meat inside of it, like Uh vegan taco meat. And Uh then we steamed it and then we opened it up and filled it with like lettuce and, you know, tomato and Uh salsa and like all the things you put on taco. And it was like taco bow. And we did like, we did a play on like, yeah, so we just like. That dish actually mm-hmm. spun off and then eventually that filling became what was more a signature dish for us was our banh mi, which was a jackfruit banh mi right. that we did that we also did at that festival. But um, uh-huh. it kind of spun off and started the role with all these other dishes. I feel like it's completely spun off. I mean, now it's literally exactly what you're doing, which is focusing on dumplings. You know what I mean? You've come mm-hmm. like it just continued to go and go and go. Um uh, well, so I, uh, I, what I was wondering on that day is just uh, h- how you did that. How, how often do you feel like in your role with food? So, um, 
I, I want to, but maybe let's tell people just a, real quick to sort of catch them up a little bit, sort of what you're doing. So you right now you're working with Jetro, which when I looked up, so it's the Japanese external trade organization, mm-hmm. but you're, you're helping introduce new foods to America, but also um, helping are, are you? I had Let read me it. Say it. Yeah, I say it that's better. great. <laughs> Please help me. Okay. Please help me. So, what's really cool because this should be marked because I wish that the U.S. government would do things like this. The Japanese government has made this commitment, and part of it is because I think the Olympics are coming to Japan, mm. so that's one part of it. Right. But they've made this commitment to trying to introduce more vegan and plant-based products into into the country and into the culture there. So Japan has all this amazing agriculture and they've got some of these naturally vegan products anyways, but it's not the Japanese food we all know and love and whatever. And so they're trying to bring these kind of more uniquely Japanese ingredients to the forefront. And all these Japanese restaurants are cooking with this stuff, but they're not doing they just have to make small tweaks to make it vegan or make mm-hmm. it more appealing to a foreigner's palate mm-hmm. um, and maybe presentation wise also. But so what they're doing is they're committing to bring all these chefs from different countries in to demonstrate how to use these Japanese ingredients in ways that other countries would do. Mm-hmm. So how to make stuff that we would make mm-hmm. um, with these ingredients that isn't nap- isn't naturally Japanese. Uh And so, um, so that's one thing. And so they're introducing, and then they're bringing all these Japanese restaurateurs to see these presentations to learn, like, how can I put one thing on my menu Uh that's vegan or vegetarian? Mm -hmm. This is very specifically vegan focused, um, program that they're doing. And it's called Gunma Vegan Project. Gunma is the, uh, prefecture of Japan that has a lot of agriculture. Mm. So um, this government-based program is basically saying, how do we take all this Japanese agriculture, infuse it into our country's chefs that they could easily put a vegan or vegetarian item on their menu, and that will appeal to foreigners who are more embracing and who are further along in the process, right? Mm. So if you have a bunch of Americans coming or a bunch of Germans coming or a bunch of Australians coming to Japan, they're coming for the Olympics. You've got mass amounts of tourism coming in. And these people are already way ahead of the game mm. in uh, as far as vegan and vegetarian eating. The products we have, the familiarity we have, the mainstreamness of it mm. is so different from Japan's culture. So they're just trying to kind of catch up. Mm. And what's really amazing is that the government is actually recognizing this and introducing this program. So I was one of several chefs from different countries, but I was the American representative going to work with vegan food in Japan and work with these Japanese products. On the other end of it, I'm bringing some of those products here uh to show our chefs, hey, here's these cool products that you might not know. Whenever you approach a new chef about a new ingredient, how they might use it, what it could be like in their restaurant, what are you trying to sort of, um, what do you think is sort of the most important way that you've learned to approach them or how do you sort of uh, try to make it seem something that could be of interest to them? I don't. I think that it's reverse. I think usually people come to me Mm -hmm. and say, I'm trying to do something X, Y, Z. How do I do that? Uh And I might suggest products to do that, or I might suggest techniques to do that, or here's a shift you can make, but it would be about solving their particular Uh problem or addressing what they're interested in. Could you give an example of some time that that's happened? Maybe. Well, you well, you were talking to me, so I remember you had told me that um, you had started using, there's a byproduct whenever they make tofu. So uh, with that, afterwards, you get some sort of thing that you can reduce down to something that's like flour. Oh, yeah. So, so this is called okara. It's a very common product in Japan because they make so much soy products. They make soy milk, they make tofu mm-hmm. with that soy milk. And the byproduct of that is the basically the pulp of the soybean, right? That is what's left over after you squeeze out all the milk. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so instead of throwing that away, sometimes it goes to animal feed, sometimes it goes to mushroom farming, sometimes it goes to other things. But one of the things they do is they dry it out and grind it up into flour. Mm -hmm. And then that flour gets used typically in Japan. They make like little cakes with it, you know, and cook with it. And so I was given this product to say, like, what could you do with this? And I started looking at kind of the protein base of it and thinking, it's so unusual that you have this like high protein flour and, um, being in the vegan world, I think that's a very desirable thing. So I started using it in pasta doughs. Mm -hmm. And so you can make vegan pasta very simply with, you know, semolina, flour, water, salt. Mm -hmm. You can make it just the way you buy dried pasta in the grocery store. But if you're going to have a fresh pasta, it's usually takes egg. Mm -hmm. And if you're making it vegan without the egg, it's not the best texture. It's got, it doesn't have the chew mm. of a fresh pasta. And what this okara flour does is it actually serves as this kind of binder and texture and protein in the dough that mimics that egg so beautifully. And so I started using it in all my doughs. I, I use it in all my dumpling doughs, all my, um, all my pasta doughs basically everything I use it in everything. I think it's an amazing product. And so I started like talking about this product to uh -huh. people like, Hey, you want to use something, talk about easy ways. Cause sometimes people want to do something. Uh -huh. They want to get a vegan thing on their menu, but they don't exactly know how to do that other than I'm going to go to the store and buy a product. Uh -huh. You know, it's not all about vegan cheese and vegan meat. Sure. So it's like, how can we just veganize things in the everyday of what we do mm -hmm. and i think that's one of those great products the uh so say this this great product and you're trying to get it out further into the world is that um like do people i guess how quickly do things like that get adopted like if you're in a kitchen what's the likelihood of this thing being in every kitchen in 10 years you know what i mean if a lot of places are trying to do vegan pasta um are, are things like that does that happen I don't know. It, you know, it's so hard to tell. One, we're in a major metropolitan city, That's so true. I think yeah. things get There's adopted here. Uh -huh. And we're also in California where things like that get adopted very quickly. Uh -huh. um, that being said, I don't know how many people are making their own fresh pasta anyways. Uh -huh. So, you know, you're talking about who out there is making fresh pasta then who out there is interested in making that fresh pasta vegan? Because why would they, if their whole clientele is not vegan? And so it's, kind of trying to convince people how do we make this shift some of it could happen just because it's cool and so i think one of the things just to get out there is like hey this is a great product whether you're vegan or not vegan mm -hmm. this is a great product gives great texture there's a ton of stuff you can do with it and sometimes you hit upon that thing with chefs that are just like that's amazing i want to use that and they can think of their own ways to use it that might not have anything to do with pasta and so you know but if they see somebody using it it gives you an idea of, oh, now I know what I would do with that, right? So when the product first got introduced to me, it was like introduced in cake form and it was had all Japanese uh, writing with it. So I didn't understand and I was trying to like Google Translate, you know, and that whole thing. And, <laughs> and so I just said, I'm going to just figure it out. Uh -huh. And so it actually went the whole different direction for me, uh -huh. you know, but once you see a few people do that. So maybe somebody else takes it and does something else with it. Then somebody sees, okay, she's doing pasta dough. This person's doing this with it. All of a sudden they come up with, oh, I could do this with, and, and then it becomes a thing of now I know how to use this product. When, mm -hmm. when a product first gets introduced, people don't know what to do with it. Sure. So they need people to show them, this is what you do with it. Mm -hmm. And then once they start doing that, they can kind of experiment on their own. Mm -hmm. How long that takes, I don't know. So we're going to take a quick break and when yeah. we get back, we're going to hear Sasha talk more about what it's like to take these products and get them out into the world. This episode is brought to you by Esther Fernando, the coolest person in the planet. Vegan Carnage Alliance. Okay, one more time. Can you do it just by yourself, though? Oh, okay. Okay. Vegan Carne Alliance. Okay, we are back now. And uh, I was just talking with Sasha about sort of how weird it was when we first met. I actually, Sasha was 
the first chef I followed on Instagram. And so I was sort of wondering, you for people who didn't don't know her, you should first find her on Instagram. It's Chef Sasha. So it's C-H-E-F and then Sasha is K-A-J-S-A. Um, but you can go online and if you scroll back, you can actually see me going off on every single post. I'm in the comments so <laughs> excited because so she she took this trip to Japan for Jetro. And mm-hmm. while you were there, I mean, every single post felt like it was opening this new sort of it was an extra opportunity to appreciate the things that are either I've been exposed to or I'm looking forward to trying. So, like, for example, there's one post where you went to a sake house right? Yes. And mm-hmm. you, so they're there and whenever they make the sake, they they were, how did they get the, it's so more than the, a sake house is where they produce sake, which right. is different than a place where you drink sake. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a manufacturing place, but there were the leaves. Where, where are the leaves even coming from? The leaves, the leaves. Cause they have the ball. Oh, you know, this was so interesting. It was just beautiful. This particular, um, place, but the leaves didn't actually have anything to do with the sake. Uh-huh. They were cedar leaves and there's cedar trees all around that property. And they, it became this tradition with them. And I, I don't want to mess up the story, but, um, became this tradition with them where they would gather these leaves, make this huge ball, like sphere looks like a huge Christmas ornament. I mean, it must be, you know, three feet wide. Um, they make this huge sphere with this fresh cedar leaves and somehow they figured out that the amount of time it takes for those leaves to dry and become brown is the exact amount of time it takes for a batch of sake to complete. So then it is such this beautiful story. Uh And, and so what they started doing is with each batch of sake, they put up a new ball of cedar leaves Uh and then everyone in the town and, them and whoever can just watch this ball and as it browns and then when it gets to a certain stage they know the batch of sake is done it's kind of a celebratory thing and there's so many cool stories about that particular place but um but that always just stuck with me as such a magical cool story and it's just striking the look of it and it was amazing i mean it's 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 a perfect encapsulation too of what i think makes japan so interesting just because i feel like whenever you're there and you're learning about how they approach particular parts of food or, you know, pieces of their culture that are related to eating and drinking. That's such a, it just felt like an encapsulation of their real connection with the way that they're doing things. I don't know. It just, it's so uniquely them. Well, I think in general, when you're traveling and I find this every time I travel, and even if we're talking about local travel, but in general, what I think people don't do enough and we get stuck and I'm part of the cycle as well, you know, with our devices. And uh-huh. it, I know it's an ongoing commentary and it's a whole conversation yeah. itself. But what I feel like happens is we forget the community that happens behind specifically things like food, which is such a part of us that goes beyond the table, right? And so, so those stories are what make the food in some ways. So when you're drinking that sake and you have that story, it's a totally different experience than if you bought that sake in the store and didn't have it. It would still be a delicious sake. It's a high quality sake. But when you have that story behind it, it makes that moment you drink it so much more memorable. Mm -hmm. And so I think my whole goal in life is actually to create meals that are made up of all those components, you know, and I think no matter where you go, if you're only eating the food and experiencing the food and you're not actually looking, I think this comes, you know, I've learned when I'm cooking plant-based food also that there's this huge divide and it doesn't have to be this divide. It could be like, this is the way we eat and how do you encompass that feeling into the food? And so Somebody may be eating something that's not vegan, but instead of shunning it right away, how do we accept that and look at it and say, wow, what's the thing that they're getting that out makes of this? It what is the culture right. uh-huh. and what is the the memory or what's the importance that they attach to this thing? Uh-huh. And how can we translate that or not translate it? And, and, and how, how do we get out of this mode of, you know, I always say like, I'm not going to tell people how to eat. Mm -hmm. And then you, the 
relationship of that is you don't tell me how to cook. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to cook what I love to cook and why I love to cook. And I want to share that. And Mm -hmm. I want to build community off of that. And so how do we all start doing that more? And through traveling and learning those stories, I think that's how you learn about the food in a much deeper level. Well, I feel like, especially in my relationship to you, I mean, we met once and then I probably, it was probably two years before I saw you again. You know what I mean? But I followed you online and that experience of knowing you was only through your storytelling. It was only through what you posted online and how you shared, but that made me feel a real connection with you that I think, um, which helped change my relationship with food. I mean, whenever I would go into your restaurants, I know that the way that I thought about the food, because you might post about how you were developing things or what you were thinking about. And then, you know, that sort of storytelling within that. Why do you think, because I do agree, I think anytime you have a knowledge of a history from where a dish comes from, there's a greater appreciation for when you eat them, that, that dish, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Why do you think that most places don't, um, fewer restaurants seem interested in that because I I follow a lot of food accounts now and I would actually say almost none of them really tell the story of their food. Um, Why do you think that that isn't something that's a larger part of culture at large? Because obviously you see it as advantageous. I mean, I I love it as much as you do. I think that I think, I don't know, I would be presuming to know why people cook their food. So so I should say that I I can't answer for all the other restaurants out there and why they tell stories the way they do. I think that it's easy as a chef to get caught up, and it depends where you're at in your career also, but it's easy to get caught up in, this is what I do so awesomely. Uh And, And unfortunately, it's also how you sell things. So our as chefs, our product is our food. And Mm. so you want to tell people, Hey, this is amazing. This Mm. is delicious. You should eat this because that's how you make your money Mm -hmm. in all honesty. So there's a part of it that's that. Mm -hmm. And so you want to talk about it, but it's so easy to get caught up in the thing of your food. Like this dish, this Mm -hmm. particular thing. Wow. This is cooked like this. This is prepared like this. This is where I get these ingredients which is all fantastic. And everybody wants to know that. I think that not everybody has a story beyond that. I don't think that's a priority or something. The story might be fuzzy. It might be, I'm not sure what the story is behind it. It's so intuitive what you're cooking. And a lot of us as chefs, we cook intuitively and we feel a dish Mm. and we feel what we want to do, but that's hard to articulate. Mm -hmm. And there's not always like a direct story, like that sake story. There's not always, I might like something or do something just because it feels right to do that. Or I have this whim to do that. Or, wow, I wonder what those two things taste like together. Mm -hmm. And I might be playing with something and then it turns into something else. And so it's not always easy to articulate that process. So I don't think it's that somebody is not telling a story. Mm -hmm. I think that the story is maybe like blurred and Mm -hmm. kind of a bunch of different components. And so there is no specific storyline to tell. Mm -hmm. And I also think that sometimes people just aren't good storytellers (laughs) as well. I mean, that's true. You know, there's, there's (laughs) a, a a limited skill set for everyone. Um, or we, you know, we have our things that we're great at. Well, and I should say, you know, when I started cooking, Chefs, nobody wanted to be a chef. Mm. Nobody ever wanted to do that. You wanted to be in the front. Mm. Nobody wanted to be in the back. Mm -hmm. And I remember very specifically, one of the very first jobs I had was in this little like cafe. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it was such a crazy cafe. But anyways, this cafe, and I remember this woman coming in, very high and mighty, a customer came in and complained to the owner, why were all the women of color working in the back? And she needed to take a look at that. And like lectured her on it. And so she came to us afterwards in the kitchen and said, you know, I'm so sorry that this never occurred to me that all of you are in the back. And all of us looked at each other and said, no, that's where we want to be. This is the good part. This is the good job. Like We get to hide back here. Well, Uh and it's where the talent is. Like anyone could go serve coffee. Uh-huh. Anyone could go take an order. Uh-huh. This is where you have to be skilled and talented. Uh-huh. And so we're challenging her uh-huh. that why does she think being in the back is a bad job? 
anyways. Do you I, still think people feel that way though? No. no. I think the the culture TV has changed that culture. So uh-huh. I think all the cooking shows, all the food network has totally changed then. Don't get me started on that. I can go on that for hours. <laughs> um but I think, you know, the world is different in the way chefs are viewed and we but what I started to say was when I started cooking, um chefs cooked that's what they did. Uh-huh. They didn't do anything else. Uh-huh. You didn't have to have an Instagram account. You didn't have to like show people what you did. Uh-huh. They came to your restaurant and they ate it and that's what you did. Uh-huh. And um, you didn't have to be a personality uh-huh. because nobody looked at you. Right. Nobody cared about who you were, what you looked like, what you wore. You didn't have fancy anything. It was like everybody wore the same uniform. Everybody wore black and white check pants uh-huh. that you got from the linen company. You wore uh-huh. your white coat, uh-huh. wore an apron. Some places you had hats, some places you didn't. And like, uh-huh. you know, and, and it was like that forever. And then came Food Network. Uh-huh. And then I think it changed. And the way cooks are changed, the way the cooks coming in changed and the whole culture of who it is to be a chef changed mm-hmm. and all of a sudden chefs were on the forefront people wanted to know what they thought wanted to see what they looked like wanted to hear about and which is cool in some ways but mm-hmm. we lost that culture mm-hmm. of hey you know it's about the food remember mm-hmm. it's about the food <laughs> right you know and so i don't know where i was going on that but well, uh, i think it's just changed a lot like how we have to present ourselves as chefs. I guess when I'm talking about telling the story, sure. we have to present in a different way to stay relevant. Well, like I said, so you were, I mean, I didn't, like I when I followed you on Instagram, you were the first time I knew that this was very early Instagram. I mean, were you even on there? Obviously you were chef Sasha on there, but do, did you get on Instagram initially as a, were you trying to I guess what like was it promotional? Did you were you just on there because you thought it was fun? Did you enjoy things like that? No, I I was actually a very late adopter to social media. I was very anti-social media. I mean, uh-huh. one is before smartphone, uh-huh. maybe or maybe well, the which very which is of course why of you're great at it for the record. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I I don't remember, but I remember Instagram being the first thing that I kind of took to because. Oh, you could just show a picture and you didn't have to explain it. You didn't have to be friends with somebody to Uh like have them look at it Uh or you look at their stuff. You could just kind of peruse and, um, and it's still like that, uh, where you, I could put up a picture and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And Uh it doesn't have to be, anyone could look at it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that's still how it works. I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> but but so it was the first kind of social media platform where also I didn't need to spend a lot of time on it. It's so funny to think that now. I didn't have to spend a lot of time on it. I could just right. put a po- picture up and then go with it. And, mm. um, and so I did take to it early on mm. in Instagram. You'd think I have a million followers by now, but you know. <laughs> They're on their way. <laughs> yeah, it'll happen someday. No, but I think that... Um, it was a way of also showing what I'm doing and getting the word out in a way that I just never took to Facebook that way. Uh, so there's like this shifting nature, right? Social media has become different things. And I think, and you were saying with chefs, the same thing has sort of happened. Your your role with food has shifted a lot. Like you, you started in kitchens and you're still working in kitchens, but now you're doing so many different things. So you're you're an advisor, you're you're working on um you're you're doing you're like these uh these dumpling delicatessen dinners um not delicatessen yes sorry yeah no 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 I think that's fair to say so what I've started doing I mean I'm a consultant now um there we go there's the fancy word yeah Uh it is uh my main career but then Uh I also have um a restaurant in the Huntington Gardens I have you know started to think about I'm at this place in my career where Luckily, I have the luxury uh-huh. of kind of saying, what is exactly I want to put out there to the world? Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things for me has always been about, not to sound anti-establishment, but I hate the culture of what restaurants have become. Mm. It used to be you had a restaurant. I sound old. I'm not going to say this. <laughs> no, you're doing I'm not great. I'm going to say what I used to be. Uh-huh. I'm just going to say what it is now. So yeah, what it talk, is yeah, now. What about interests you? is that I would like to do something where people can come eat food. Uh I can prepare food Uh and we can all enjoy it together and talk about it. It doesn't have to be this, um, 
very lofty thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we can, I could travel around and just cook for people and mm-hmm. people can just eat it mm-hmm. and like enjoy it. And that I make friends along the way and create community along the way and also community between the people who are coming to eat the food. So I started this traveling restaurant, which is called Mad Misha's and it is called the traveling dumpling delicatessen. That's what, um, Oh, I got it right. Near, okay. Yeah. You oh, did good. Get it right. And so what the idea of this is, is not only, um, having this mix of different people coming, but of preparing food from different areas of the world and really showing the commonality of it and how it compared together. My street, my restaurant street was very similar, but I think I've just as my next level, which is basically dumplings are a universal food. We all love them. They all come in different flavors. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it's one of the most beloved foods. I feel like you doing this makes so much sense because for, I mean, just, I love you so much and you doing food that's so, um, I think in the same way you were working with Jetro and trying to make people more comfortable with certain things. Uh, I feel like the dumpling is, I mean, it's like in America, it is it is rivaling the burger. You know what I mean? Like people love their burgers and it's like, have you ever given someone a dumpling and they've been like, I don't really like those. Never. No, not once. I don't See, think so. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that even people who have told me they've never had dumplings before, which on very rare occasions that's happened. That just happened to me recently once where somebody said, Oh, I've never had a dumpling. And no. I thought, really? That's wonderful. But, and you in got any to give way, them your first so, dumpling. So yeah. And so, um, and it was crazy because she was at my house tasting and, and, uh, and oh, it was she a got very, like the full courses and all yeah, that. Well, she was there when I was testing, so she didn't actually get the best version of it. But I, I thought that's really amazing. And I love to be able to do that, but also, you know, to be able to introduce things like, you know, in Turkey, there's dumplings in Siberia, there's dumplings in Mongolia, there's dumplings in India, there's dumplings and to be able to do that and show people that what you consider to be a dumpling. And I use dumpling because there's no other word to kind of attach to it I guess I could say stuffed things but you know that doesn't sound (laughs) it doesn't sound as good yeah but um but you know I think that really this idea of it being and why it's called Mad Misha's is because I wanted something that felt very vaudeville like Mm. it felt like one of those old gypsy caravans that used to go around with their tonics and elixirs and like Uh kind of do the show for everyone that's what I really wanted it feel like is like hey let's come and do this show of food of really like I'm going to come to you. We work very community based, you know, so it's always we have a host that sponsors the event. They give their house and their home and then everyone comes and participates in the meal together and we all enjoy this meal together. I come to you. It it became this very community driven thing and you've been to one of the dinners. So um, you can probably tell your own perspective but but it was really about bringing these foods together and bringing community together to enjoy the food in kind of this really celebratory way of hey check this out this three ring circus of Uh what we call eating Uh these days because there's no one type of food it's a mishmash of um cultures and foods and flavors that are just coming from everywhere and so how do we put that together in a way that could be really fun and exciting and experience it outside of a restaurant well it's it's kind of like the greatest way to i always i had a friend who lived in west hollywood whenever i was in my 20s and i said why why would you live here and he he goes uh, he was like well yeah i don't know i mean it's uh uh it, it just it didn't seem like the place for someone like him and he was like well the thing that's wonderful out here is he goes he was like i'm in my 30s and everyone has dinner parties and i go oh okay all right and i felt like going to your party was sort of an experience like that for me where I was trying to under you know you go there and it's it's almost like the best way to meet people it's the most wonderful party because it's it's, I mean it's food centered and you're sitting around and you're you get to have a drink and you get to meet all new people but it's there's that joy of the eating with it and all of that thing sort of wrapping together and I feel like that's the it's the perfect way to actually like come together and meet new friends I don't know I've really learned the joy of dinner parties and I I think that's exactly what yours feels like it feels like this um cozier warmer version of that because when you go to people's homes there's a you have a respect I mean whenever I go to someone's home I'm really trying to like I'm really you know wiping off my shoes before I come in their front door and you know you're trying to respect intimacy also there's an intimacy about being in somebody's home Mm -hmm. them opening up their home and their family and their life to you and then also the intimacy of 
being with people who you don't know. So mm -hmm. you might come with a guest, but you're sitting at a table with people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And that automatically sparks conversation and a different togetherness that doesn't exist if you go to a restaurant. And so I think it's kind of the best of both worlds mm -hmm. for me and like to be able to cook that way. And also to be able to go to different places for me, even going to different neighborhoods and seeing like, how am I going to do this dinner? Mm -hmm. And I could tweak it and form it to be whatever I want to be and, mm -hmm. and fit the community and kind of introduce new things. And, and the seasonality, everything mm -hmm. like that. Part of one of the things that I loved about going where we did was I'll never be back in that house ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, I don't picture that. So it's, it's sort of like this, um, it's like a, it felt like a dream, you know, like a you, moment in time. Yeah, yeah. I literally, I'll never, like, I'll never be able to recreate that. Like your menu is going to always be changing. Right. And it's one of those things where it's like, if I didn't have it, then I will never have it. And I, I think there's a real beauty to that sort of, um, in the art world, it's sort of shifted a lot recently where it's such a big thing to have installations now for the sole purpose of, because people are so focused on social media and posting things on there having an actual installation something that only exists in that space means people have to go see it in mm -hmm. that space for it to be important and uh or more important to their lives and i feel like with food that's one of the things that is so interesting about the way that you're sort of setting up these menus or a business that can be shifting like that is that you get the opportunity to constantly sort of accommodate what you think is interesting which mm -hmm. um i a lot of businesses can't do that they have to buy in bulk they have to keep a steady menu you have well, to right so as a restaurant owner you have to maintain a certain even if your menu changes daily mm -hmm. the whole thing doesn't change it i mean we've all worked in restaurants like that i've had restaurants like that where the menu is changing daily mm -hmm. but you still have your core ingredients right. your core dishes your core right. things and you have your brick and mortar place which never changes or it might decor might change but it doesn't change mm -hmm. i mean it was actually kind of the concept to, um of blue window mm -hmm. was when i came up with blue window it was about this like how can we have a restaurant that doesn't get tired because mm -hmm. they all get tired we mm -hmm. all get tired of eating the same thing of course sure. so, so if you're a business owner that's really hard to do you either keep guests who keep coming back because they want the same thing mm -hmm. all the time or because they expect change. But how can you do change? And so when I created Blue Window, it was mostly about how can I create a, re a restaurant where we do something completely different? And it was like we switched the whole entire menu would be completely different every six months. Right, which is, I think, something that should be sort of, I, I've definitely wanted to mention that. I think that and Street were both some of the most incredible concepts I've like, I've really come to see. I think that the idea, I mean, like you said, of switching that menu every six months, you have like a whole new item. There was this like, you you need to go. You have to go and see it yourself. If you don't go, it will not be there forever. Sort of knowing that. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's carried forward. Now you're doing this with the dumplings. Right. And it's not, it shouldn't be thought of as creating a FOMO moment because mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between saying like, hey, we're going to do something and you're going to miss out. Uh -huh. That's one direction. Uh -huh. What I'm trying to do is actually create the opposite, which is I'm going to do this and I'm going to keep doing it. Uh -huh. And each one is unique in itself. So no matter which one you go to, uh -huh. it's going to be amazing right. and cool no matter and an what. experience that you're uh -huh. going to love and it will be a part of you because you're a part of it. And so it's not this like fear of like, oh my God, I got to get on that train or I'm not cool enough or I can't do, which I think a lot of restaurants do. And, and it's so frustrating. It's like, no, I want you to come be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And I've already had people who come, who came to a Mad Misha's and now they are hosting another Mad Misha's. Ooh. So, so, you know, the guests become the hosts and then the hosts get other people people involved. And it's and like a growing network. It's a web. It is. And it becomes this community thing as opposed to it being like, oh, this thing that you go take a selfie with uh -huh. and then, wow, look, your friends didn't get to go. It's like, no, this is something that can continue and grow and be like this organic thing, a different way of eating uh -huh. and a different way of enjoying the company of others. So we're going to take a real quick break and we're going to talk more about Sasha and enjoying people around you at these wonderful events. This episode... It's brought to you by oxygen uh, that gives me life and support so I could breathe clearly 
podcast is brought to you by Wheat. That's it. That's the whole thing. Wheat. And we're back. So, Sasha, I was wondering, whenever you're starting on this new menu, you're talking about creating these communities. Whenever you... What, like, can you talk to me about the process of doing an event like this? Do, is it about finding the place first? Do you have, do you have a a dish you really want to make a specific dumpling that starts the whole menu? Like, where do you, where's it begin for you? Uh, there's a bunch of things simultaneously that happen, so I'm always cooking. Uh-huh. So, what actually makes it to a menu, whether it's um, in a restaurant or for one of these events? Um, could be something that I've been working on for forever. It could be years of work or something that I just came up with yesterday. So, so I'm always working on things. I think that's true for most creative people, Mm -hmm. right? You're not just coming up with one piece because you just decided to, it's like, no, you've been working on something a while and it just kind of came to be, or all of a sudden you had an idea and it came out. So, so it happens the same with cooking. So I think that, there's always all these dishes that I love and then it becomes about what pairs well together and what do I want to share or what do I think also is good enough to share? Like there's plenty of things I cook and it's like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't show a lot of the mistakes. Sometimes I try and show the mistakes to show like Uh this didn't just like magically appear like this. Like I went through 20 processes of it before it got to this state. Right. Which is, I mean, part of the, I talk about, and I do a lot of design work and like in making logos, right? You want a logo to appear sort of perfect in its natural state. You want to, you want to see it and go, oh, it's obvious. It's so good. What a nice way to handle that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like eating is the same way. Like you never want to eat. You don't want to you don't want a same way you don't want a half formed idea of a logo. You kind of don't want a half formed idea of a dish. You want that perfect experience right. with that thing. Um, so in that sort of development, as you're making these dishes, what's a, what's sort of like the timeline on it? Like, do you, do you do a whole new menu for each one? No, usually there's dishes that I love that will carry through for a while of, uh-huh wow, I really want people to taste this as a so unique or I particularly love this dish. Mm-hmm. And I think, or I'll see a pattern of we'll do the same dish three times and then everybody always loves this one. You know, we'll uh-huh. do the same menu a bunch of times and everybody always is drawn to these two dishes. So we always put those two dishes on or, or something. So it might be that. It also could be in my own head. This is just totally me. This is completely unique to me. I think that, um, in my own head, I think we are getting dogs delivered to us. We are going to take a real quick pause. Hello. Okay. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by an opportune barking. Okay, we're back real quick. We now have the dogs in lap, so that way they won't be trotting around. Sasha is hanging out with Bongo. I'm going to take a photo of her right now. So this yeah. is this is what I'm going to post whenever we uh, we get this. Here we go. Hey, Bongo. 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 Hey, buddy. Here we go, Bongo. Right here, buddy. Here hey, buddy. He's oh. following me. Yep. Here we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Good. So you were talking about making the menus. So whenever you're starting these things, every single time you're trying to figure out, I feel like you're not only, it's like you're like a musician, but you're also the editor of your own album. You know what I mean? You're making the songs, mm-hmm. but you're also trying to organize them. You're trying to put them, you're, t- ooh, ooh, you, you okay? Oh, or did you just fall off? Yeah. Oh, I thought it, sorry. I thought no. it hit you or something. No, no, no. Okay. It just kind of like whoop um so yeah you're 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 trying to figure out how to sort of sequence these things you're coming up with that order every time you're doing this how how do you approach it what's like the the thing you're thinking about you're you said you field test them do you do you immediately do like this is the 10 i'll do and then and then start moving things around do you have a rough idea god i mean you're asking to describe a whole process um in a (laughs) sentence i think that you know i start with usually how it comes to me is in an idea. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I'm working on this menu right now. That's all you've probably noticed it in some of my posts. I've just started cooking with the books I'm reading. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a long commute many days. Um, and so 
I started listening to audiobooks uh-huh. and it became this thing where I got a little addicted to mm-hmm. I, I didn't actually expect it because I love to read, uh-huh. but I just had no time to read. Uh-huh. But I was finding myself in the car for long hours at a time. So I started listening to audiobooks and then not only was I loving the books, but I started actually becoming a little bit addicted to the people who read the books uh-huh. and their voices well, and the way they read. You specifically read. posted that one. You were like, I love this woman's voice. It was the oh. author's voice actually, wasn't yes. it? Yes, Si Chu and um, this book, Night Tiger, which I'm in love with. I'm a little obsessed with her. And, and she commented on my Instagram the other day. I <gasps> kind of screamed out loud. I wrote her and I said, I sort of screamed out loud when I got your comment. Uh-huh. But And she's probably thinking, you crazy woman. Uh-huh. Crazy. So I kind of had to lay off. Like, okay, like, <laughs> chill out. But, uh-huh. um, but no, I started listening to these audiobooks and I became a little obsessed with the way listening to somebody read makes you feel. And, um, and it would just bring a story to life in this different way for me that reading the book on paper doesn't do, which is it started to spark this kind of food thing in me um, where I became really focused on what is everyone I started picturing the story in a different way than when I read it on the page. And I, I can't even explain how it happened. But um, so I started cooking things that these books made me feel like inspired me to cook. So, so I, I, I've just been kind of doing this in my own time, but I just decided the other day, I think I'm going to do a menu of all the books I love and not now some of the dishes correlate to the stories and some are just like what came out of me listening to the stories and like what like I'd have crazy dreams I'm a very vivid dreamer and so I'd have crazy dreams about dishes or flavors and and uh yeah and so something might start like that I'm just saying I was trying to pinpoint the randomness of like how it might happen I dream a lot of my stuff so people who know me and have worked for me know that like I bought a juicer because I was talking about juicing for so long and then I had a dream and I bought my juicer in my sleep and um you know I I'm a very vivid dreamer so a lot of things Mad Misha's the name came from a dream so I I dream very lucidly and and a lot of times those things make it into my food Uh um but many times it starts very randomly and then I find a dish that I make and I just love or a sauce that I make that I love and so what's going to go with that and it it's not very cohesive in the beginning can you taste in your dreams oh yeah and they're always full color and very vivid and I'm usually not myself I'm usually other people in my dreams and so you know it's like being John Malkovich who who do you know the people that you are no, it's usually just random. Uh-huh. Like I'll be a cowboy or I'll be like life. a little girl hopscotching or I'll be like, yeah, it's like crazy. And so, um, and, and a lot of times I'm eating in my dreams or eating with people who are or with people who are eating things or I'm cooking something and it's very, I mean, obviously it's my world. And so of course that would make it into my dreams, but do you think of that as like a secret weapon? So if you are a girl hopscotching, does that somehow influence the food that you make? Maybe not that particular dream, but it could uh-huh. if there was something um, in my dream that was very fragrant, like there's smells in my uh-huh. dream. So there might be a smell that's very fragrant and I wake up thinking, oh, I just want to make something like that. Like a lot of the curry pastes I make are kind of tweaks on recipes I know, but maybe flavors that I dreamt about or something that I think, oh, that's what a, you know, I don't know. That's what a swan would like kind of it makes sense because like, I mean, if curry it, based, I don't if, know. It's like it's such a strange way of talking when you're lucid and awake, <laughs> but in your dream, it makes sense. You well, know, y- you saying this makes a lot of sense in the fact that you live dreams as other people. Did you hear about a book called Lincoln and the Bardo that came out a couple of years ago from no. George Saunders? So it was supposed to. It, uh, I don't know if it did win the Pulitzer or it's maybe it still hasn't been chosen. Maybe it came out last year, but it's this book and he's had this dream or this story forever. But so George Saunders is the most famous American, one of the most famous American short story writers. Mm-hmm. But he this is the first novel he's ever done. And he said he had this idea forever. But it's it's a true story about when Lincoln's son passed. He went out to the Bardot, which is a place where you would keep a body that has passed before it is buried in case the body were to come back to life. Mm-hmm. And the the book is about his son bringing uh, 
the ghosts of other people to Lincoln so he can speak with them. And that in, in theory, the sort of poeticism of this idea is that this is how Lincoln becomes so empathetic. And this is how Lincoln um, uh, uses this to inform his experience and become the president that he does. Hmm. Um, it's just, it's a beautiful idea, but it sounds almost like you. And it speaks to, I mean, if I were ever going to, if I were going to use one word to describe you, I would say you're a bridge between every culture. I mean, you were talking about your, um, <laughs> the dogs are kissing Sasha <laughs> on the mouth right now, um, or trying Make to at least. Um, yeah, they're kissers. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry. But it's, yeah. <laughs> um, trying to get to the mic. Um, uh, yeah, it's going right for the mouth. Uh, wiener dogs are um, mouth kissers. Uh, but it, sorry, coming back, you you are a bridge. I mean, in the same way I was saying, you doing carnivore and vegan food, you your your mother being Asian, but your father your father being European, you're constantly bridging these things and it speaks to your empathy for kind of everything in the way that you would say that you dream and they feel so vivid of you living another life as someone who is hopscotching or um, uh, what was the other example you gave? A cowboy. Yeah, you're a cowboy. It's like you um, have that experience. I, uh, it's just, it's, it, it makes sense. Um, well, and I like to think of my menus as sort of dreamlike also, or otherworldly, like something that you would experience in some other tents, mm-hmm. you know, is how, I love people to experience my food, you know, is, um, I want them to come and really just dive in and be a part of it in a way that maybe isn't realistic if you're going to a restaurant, you know, and Uh like really be able to, well, and also to be there and to talk about it Uh and to tell, tell them those stories. When you you say that isn't realistic, what do you mean by that? Well, you can't feasibly, if you have a restaurant, you can't, you touch on people right you Uh try and talk to everyone and and a good restaurateur will do that and Uh and try and bring a personality to people's experience but you can't possibly do that in the way you could do it in an intimate small dinner party environment Uh and um and i think the story as i've said is important to me where where the food is coming from and where the flavors are coming from and why we do it. The dumpling dinners is very interesting and I'm still kind of getting the feel for it, but you know, also the interactive part of it, like teaching everyone to do the dumplings, to make the dumplings, you oh, yeah. know, I think that's such a fun thing. And like, I always want to have an engaging part of the meal process too. It's like, this is beyond the food. It's your whole experience. It's your whole way of eating you know that is beyond just the food well that was one of the that really i think enriches that experience too is for people who have never made dumplings which i even took a dumpling class from you um which was really really fun but i think you know um people don't understand the difficulty of doing things like that until they actually try it themselves and Mm -hmm. you offered people that opportunity i um is that something that you think is really important i mean do you Will you continue to do that? Is that something that's going to be like an institution in Mad Misha's is that people always try to make dumplings? Well, I think it's a fun thing to do. I, I mean, I, I, I and it's something that's easily done at the table. Uh-huh. You know, I like to um, credit Natalie for making homemade Play-Doh to uh, <laughs> to give to everyone to do that with. But it's it's something that's engaging. It's something that gets a table of people who don't know each other talking also uh-huh. because you can sit them down at a table with drinks and a menu uh-huh. And how much talking is going to happen as much as their personalities allow. Uh Now throw a piece of Play-Doh in front of them and directions to fold a dumpling that they've never made. Uh And those specific shapes were chosen on purpose. Um, But then all of a sudden you have a group of people talking and comparing and looking and then it brings up their stories Mm -hmm. of like oh I did this dumpling class once or oh I you know I ate something like this one time or oh have you ever had that and then all those things make for the experience so so it's I don't know if it will always be that but it will always be something that's engaging the little fortune tellers that we put on the table you know everything that engages people to step out and talk about their things and of course I love when people take pictures of the food but really like it's time also to put the phone down and like really engage with the people around you and and enjoy the experience and really feel it and 
and kind of get into it the moment as much as the food Mm. because it only makes the food better. It it does. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we were surrounded by wonderful people and it was, um, it was incredible. So I, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and, uh, in this, I want to say, Sasha, thank you so much for coming on. So if people want to find you online, is the best place to go Instagram? Probably from there, they uh-huh. can find me in other ways, but yeah. I think Instagram is the way I put myself out and you could check out my food and see what I'm doing. I always update on Instagram. You right. will not find me on Facebook. That is private for my kids and family. <laughs> so um, you could try, but uh-huh. don't invite me on Facebook. I won't accept it. So. But on Instagram at Chef Sasha and it's spelled K-A-J-S-A. That's excellent. All right. And if people wanted to find these Mad Mishas, should they find that through there too? Yes, I'm trying to get a page going for Mad Misha's, but it's slow happening uh-huh. right now. So in the holiday season, so there will eventually be a way to go to Mad Misha's directly. For uh-huh. now, you can find it through me. And I do do a lot of things off a of referral and private message. So, you know, don't be shy about private messaging me. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, thanks for everybody who's been listening. Uh, you can find us uh, online at Vegan Carne Alliance. Um, that's on Instagram or vegan underscore carne on Twitter or vegancarnealliance.com on the internet. Uh, if you enjoyed today's program, please give us five stars because it makes more people find us and hopefully they can enjoy us, enjoy us also. Um, if you would like to hear more stories from wonderful chefs and or hear dogs walking around and barking and also trying to kiss our guests on the mouth, you can make that happen by Definitely uh, an intimate this. experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you very, very much for coming on today. Thanks, Chris. Thank Loved you. it. Okay. Vegan carne alliance. Vegan carne alliance. Vegan carne alliance.